Then it was time for their purification offering as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of the Lord says, if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace. As you have promised, I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people, Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall, and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. She was the daughter of Phanuel, from the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married only seven years. Then she lived as a widow, to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshipping God with fasting and prayer. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone, waiting expectedly for God to rescue Jerusalem. When Jesus' parents had fulfilled all the requirements of the law of the Lord, they returned home to Nazareth in Galilee. There the child grew up healthy and strong, he was filled with wisdom, and God's favor was on him. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, just uh, before we get into uh, the, the sermon itself, I just have a few uh, sort of housekeeping things that uh, I want to deal with. There'll be an email that's, uh, that's going to be going out that will also explain all of this, but uh, I'm sure many of you are wondering what's happening for Christmas. What's happening uh, for Christmas Eve? Uh, what's happening uh, throughout the Christmas season? And so we will be uh, live airing a Christmas Eve service. And so there won't be an in-person Christmas Eve service because we just don't have the ability to have the capacity to have people in for that. And so we are in the process of, though, putting together a Christmas Eve service that I think is actually going to be super special, super uh, communal in nature, and so I really want to encourage you to join us at 6 o'clock on Christmas Eve on uh, YouTube, Facebook, all of the platforms, the church online platform, and so on. So 6 o'clock on Christmas Eve will be our Christmas Eve special service. Now the following two weeks after that, I believe the 27th, the Sunday right after Christmas, as well as December 3rd, we will not be doing our watch party like we're doing right now. So there will still be a service, but it'll be a live aired service. And we have a special uh, guest with us named Mike Gordon. Mike is a speaker uh, that travels all over the world, speaking at conferences and things like that. And so we're really uh, uh, blessed to have Mike with us. For both of those weeks, he's actually prepared messages specifically for Evergreen for those two weeks, and he happens to be a friend of Tamil's. Uh, he is a youth and young adult specialist, so to speak. Uh, he has a lip ring, you know, so we're really going down a slippery slope, uh, but it'll be okay. He has a lot of amazing things to say, and he's a really, really amazing communicator, and so join us for those two weeks. Part of the reason behind that, actually, folks, I'll be completely transparent with you. Since COVID hit, our staff here have not had any holidays. And so we decided that, one, there's holidays that they get contractually that they have not actually been able to take. And so we're, uh, we decided that Christmas is about family and about being together. And, uh, and so we 
are going to live air those services so that the staff can get a week off. Technically, it's three whole days uh, that aren't stat days and all of that kind of stuff. So we're going to take those three days off, those two Sundays specifically off, and then we'll be back again the following week to fire up into a sermon series that we're going to be giving a fancy name eventually, but essentially it's on uh, peacemaking and reconciliation. And so we'll be doing three to four weeks of that. So I hope everybody has a good, safe Christmas. I hope you gather together whatever the legalities are around that, whether it be around videos, whether it be in person, whatever we're able to do, uh, and that you're truly blessed. And remember, folks, what Christmas is actually about. It isn't actually about the presents. It isn't actually even about gathering together around a turkey. It's actually about Jesus Christ. And so you have not lost your Christmas, no matter what you think in our society. You haven't lost your Christmas. Jesus was born regardless of COVID-19. And so we can celebrate that in many different ways. So last week, we were introduced to a devout and righteous man named Simeon. As you heard in the passage that was being read, um, last week we, we spent the whole sermon essentially working through context of what is actually happening in this story and why the gospel writer is even telling it. Why is Luke even sharing this story? And so we had to dig into a whole bunch of background, a whole bunch of historical context, mostly what's called the intertestament years, the years between the Old and the New Testament, which was about 400 years, they suspect, between the two testaments. It's kind of neat, right, to think about that when you turn one page in your Bible, you're actually turning historically 400 years forward. Like, talk about a fast-forward button, right, to just turn one page and it's 400 years. But a lot of things happened in those 400 years. And so the context that I helped you with last week is extremely important to understand the setting in which Luke tells us this narrative. You see, the Jewish people, they've been waiting for generation after generation for the promised king that Moses actually, even back in Deuteronomy, and some would argue that even in Genesis chapter 3, that there's a hint of the Messiah, even in those passages, that that Moses, though, specifically told them that a prophet like him would come one day. In, In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, it says this, "'The Lord your God will rise up for you a prophet like me from among your fellow Israelites.'" And then he says, you must listen to him. So as generations passed, the Jews would share these narratives. They would share these stories. That's how they taught in their culture at the time. They didn't have books like this to give out to people. They shared stories verbally about past generations. And so as generations passed, the stories of this coming king, this coming prophet, had become actually more and more of kind of a fairy tale. Stories that generation after generation after generation after generation after generation after generation after generation generation had been told over and over and over and over again. Do you get my point? Have you ever, like, heard the same narrative, the same story, the same things over and over again? What, What actually tends to happen? It just becomes not so real. And that's what was happening at the time of Jesus. You see, many had placed their hope in a Messiah figure that would lead the people into war against other nations, helping Israel to prevail and become the great nation that God had always promised that they would be. This was the narrative that the Jews believed they were waiting for. They were waiting for a warrior. Little did they know that they'd been looking for the wrong thing. Do you think in current Christianity, there's times we're looking for the wrong thing? That there's times that we're holding on to things that the Bible doesn't call us to hold on to at all, but we we proof text it and make it say what we want it to say, and it makes it that we're looking for all the wrong things. And when you're looking for the wrong things, you actually tend to find the wrong things. 
Now, the leaders of Israel, which was the Pharisees and the temple leaders, the Sadducees, those are the new people that we are introduced to in the New Testament. They didn't exist in the Old Testament. They were very content with how things were during the birth of Jesus. They were in charge of the temple. They were able to travel around and and teach their message of the coming Messiah, to teach their, their interpretations of the scripture. The rabbis would travel all over the place. Yes, they were under Roman rule, but it wasn't so bad because they could still make money off the temple. They were still ultimately in charge. Rome, Herod had given them the ability to have the Sanhedrin, so they even had their own Jewish government. Things were actually pretty good. And they really liked the way things were. And because of that, many had forgotten about the promise of a coming king and the kingdom in which this king would bring. Yet, some still remembered and held on to the hope of being free from oppression, the oppression that they lived under their own people. The religious leaders in Rome who was running things in the first century. This is the context of this story. Simeon and Anna, devout Jews who still hold on to the hope that was given to them through their ancestors hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So last week we explored the question, What was it about Simeon meeting baby Jesus in the temple that made it that he was now ready to die? What was it that that made it that he was so at peace in this moment that he was like, Lord, you can take me now. It's over. I can pass. I can come to be with you. And so I want to continue to explore this question as well as uh, introducing Anna into this part of the story. And so when Simon held the child, he revealed to us the significance of this moment. Let's take a look. In Luke chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, listen very carefully to what Simeon says. It says, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace. As you've promised, I have seen your salvation. Now, that's kind of weird, right? Because as Christians, we link our salvation to not just, like, this is baby Jesus he's holding. And so we link our salvation to the, birth, the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't link our salvation to the birth of a baby. And so what, what on earth is Simeon talking about here? How on earth has he possibly seen salvation when the Roman road has not happened yet? He doesn't have a prayer he can pray. He he doesn't have a formula that he can develop about what salvation is or what salvation looks like. How has Simeon possibly seen God's salvation? And then he says, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations and he is the glory of your people, Israel. Simeon can now die in peace. Listen, listen, folks. Simeon can now die in peace because he knows that peace has come through this child. Salvation, deliverance from oppression for all the people. The nation of Israel would now see God's glory. All this seems a little strange. Because if you read the Old Testament, they've seen God's glory in a cloud hovering. They've experienced God's glory, Moses did, in a fire. So why is it that he believes that this salvation he's seeing is also part of seeing God's glory? I I want you to begin to think through those questions as I start to navigate us through the text. Now, obviously... Simeon felt meeting baby Jesus was a big deal. Do we, do we think that baby Jesus is a big deal? Like the Talladega Nights, the movie, which is a wonderful movie, they, they thought that, that baby Jesus was a big deal, so much that he prayed to baby Jesus at the dinner table, right? 
for those of you that that know Christian, we don't watch movies, secular movies, right? We we just yeah. <sighs> Simeon thought baby Jesus was a big deal, so much of a big deal that he had seen salvation through this child, but not just for himself, but for the nation. As this is going on, as this narrative is going on, we're introduced to another interesting character. And her name is Anna. And the text says that she is, she's overhearing this conversation. And this was her reaction. So Luke chapter 2, verse 38 says, she came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph. So the context of Anna is she hangs out in the temple all the time. Uh, she's there every day, she's there every night, and she's just dedicated her entire life to being in the temple and praying. She was married for eight years and, uh, and then has been a widow ever since. And this is what she's been doing. And so she comes along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. What Simeon was saying about this child caused Anna to praise God and to tell everyone who had been waiting for God to rescue them. I want you to hear that. What Simeon is saying in this passage caused Anna's reaction to praise God and to tell everyone. That's her Christmas reaction, folks, is to praise God and to tell everyone who had been waiting for God to rescue them. So, it was so, so what was so significant, essentially, about what Simeon says? Well, he tells us in Luke chapter 2, verses 33 to 35, Jesus' parents, listen to their reaction, Mary and Joseph, were amazed at what was being said about him, about their son. And then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall. What do you mean? Like, how is this good news? How is this wonderful? How is this something that we're going to now tell everybody? Hey, Mary, hey, mom, your child is going to cause a whole bunch of people to fall. Yeah. It's exactly what I wanted in my baby. But he said that this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. Hmm. Some are to fall and some are to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your very soul. <clears throat> I want you to notice a few things that are going on here. First, have you ever noticed that in the entire Christmas story, God is speaking to and directing a whole bunch of nobodies? Not one person in this story is an important figure in current religious culture. Not one person in this story is a religious leader of any sort or, or a government agency of any sort. Not one person in the Christmas narrative has anybody ever heard of. God, who hasn't spoken 400 years, is speaking to and directing a bunch of nobodies. Mary and Joseph are, are the, just Mary's, they're, they're teenagers. They, like, they don't, like, can you imagine, like, your 15-year-old your daughter? They're teenagers. And Simeon, he's just an old, devout man who longs to see Israel saved. And Anna is just an old widow woman who hangs out in the temple all day. I would suspect that the Sadducees were actually often annoyed with Anna. Why is this old woman around all the time? Heaven forbid she's praying in the temple. We have things to sell, money to make. 
None of these characters are significant in their current culture at all. And that is really important for you to understand the Christmas narrative and actually really important for you to understand the entire New Testament narrative. None of them are important in their culture. None of them hold stature. None of them hold a name. None of that. They're not noticed by anybody. They're not the religious elite. They're just simply peasants. This is important to notice because I think God does it on purpose. I think that he's telling us something in this narrative. So with that in mind, let's look at what Simeon said about this child. He said that the child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and others to rise. Now, this is pointing to exactly what I wanted you to notice. The important people are about to fall, and the insignificant people, the ones on the margins, the poor, the sick, the lepers, they were all going to be lifted up all because of this child. We see this all through the Christmas story, like when God calls the shepherds to come. Listen to what the old te- an Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann, and tell- he's old. Google him sometime. Like He's really old. I think he's like 200 years old or something. But he's a brilliant Old Testament scholar, and a very wise old man. And this is what he says. He says, shepherds are a metaphor for for the forgotten people. So the shepherds are playing an important role in this story, and yet they are forgotten people. They are marginalized people. They were considered filthy, dirty, gross people in the time of Christ. He says, and God calls them to come. And the angels said to them that they should be filled with wonder because essentially this is important, he says. History is being broken open with new possibilities. He's talking about the birth of Jesus and the the shepherd narrative. Because history is being broken open with new possibilities. The blind will see, the lame will walk, the lepers will be cleansed, the dead will be raised, and the poor will be happy. This is not possible under our current system because we lack wonder. But today, hope lies in the story and the community that practices it. Hmm. That's really interesting. Hope lies in the story, so the narrative about Jesus, the narrative of the New Testament, and the community that practices that narrative. He's talking about the church. He's talking about the people who practice faith in a society that's broken and lost. He's talking about marginalized people, people that that don't have status, practicing these things. Because God came in the flesh to change the way the world works. This is why Simeon says that some will fall and others will rise. And many will oppose him, the text says. Simply because, now take a step back and just hear me. Why would people be opposing somebody that's going to deliver them and save them and change the world? If we actually just look at this from a non-scholarly approach and we just look at this from everyday life and experience as a leader, it's simply because change makes people angry. And those who like it the way that it is don't want others to get ahead. They only want themselves to. That's what's actually happening when we're digging our heels in saying that, no, I like it this way. It can never be changed. It doesn't matter if God's changing it. None of that is relevant. I want it this way. And the scriptures say that that's the person that will deny him and that's the person that will fall. When someone is important and they lose their significance, they tend to get a little upset. And Jesus is going to cause this exact thing to happen. The, Old Test- the New Testament narrative is saturated with this narrative, folks. People who are important that lose their important significance, getting upset to the point that they killed the child, all because they don't want to lose their significance. And Simeon says that as a result of this, 
Many people's deepest thoughts will be revealed. Take a step back. Think about this. Would you be okay if your deepest thoughts were revealed right now? You know, like that thought that you had about that other person the other day, that thing that you kept inside your head because it's not appropriate to actually say it? That, that, that thought. Would that thought be okay if we revealed it? Because that's what Simeon says is about to happen. That people's thoughts are going to be revealed. And that is what's going to cause the shift, the change in trajectory. So why on earth is Simeon and Anna so excited for these things? Because I, when I read those things, I'm like, oh boy, my thoughts are revealed to everybody. Everything that I think about, good luck, by the way, if you get my thoughts. Uh, but everything that I think about is about to be revealed to everybody. Am I actually comfortable with that? Uh, like, do I like status? Do I like things to be the way that I like things to be? Like, this doesn't actually sound like something good. And, and I want you to understand that actually in the birth narrative of Jesus Christ, things are not good. Things are not rosy. That's our culture that's changed the narrative to be this holiday festive thing. But things were actually not rosy at all. So why would Simeon and Anna be so excited about these things? They kind of seem difficult. And many of us, we don't like conflict. Yet it seems like that is exactly what is going to happen. That's exactly what we have to look forward to is conflict. Well, the answer is simple. When the world around you is built in such a way that liars, slanderers, those full of judgment get ahead, yet those who are honest, care for others' well-being, and show genuine care for humanity are considered lowly people. You'd be pretty excited to hear that a new king was going to turn all of this upside down. This is what the Christmas story, folks, is actually all about. It completely turned the world upside down and gave those with no hope, hope. So how does the Christmas story bring us hope? I want to look at three things that the birth of baby Jesus brought that Simeon and Anna were excited about. The first is that God came. The season of Advent shows us that God felt it was worth the risk to show up in the flesh. I'm not sure that in our general reading of the text, we understand the risk that God is actually taking here. The, the, the whole doctrine of the incarnation, God with us, God taking on flesh is a risk that the creator of heaven and earth is taking. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, So the word became human. And made his home among us. God became human and made his home with us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. God felt that it was worth the risk to show up in the flesh. Not a burning bush, not a hovering cloud, but human just like you and I. God came in the flesh, God with us in human form, and he came, this is interesting, as a baby. He came, folks, as a baby. God comes in the flesh, not as a warrior, but as a baby. This is what the angel said to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 to 33. He says, don't be afraid, Mary. Like, I don't know, an angel appears to you, and says, calm down. It's all good. Don't be afraid. This isn't weird. This is, there's nothing to this. Just, just be calm. You're just automatically going to go, oh, yeah, yeah. No problem. Angel glowing before me, and he's talking. And the angel told her this, for you have found favor with God. Now, this is a, this is a 15-year-old kid, they think, roughly in that age somewhere, who's hearing from an angel and has just been told that you have found favor with God. God, that you will conceive and give birth to a son, 
and you will name him Jesus. She's not even pregnant, nor has she participated in the things that create that. Called a virgin. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. Think about this. You are going to have a baby from the Holy Spirit. That baby is going to be great and called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord is going to place that son on the throne of the greatest king that your nation has ever had. A man who's after God's own heart, this is his replacement. And he will reign over Israel, not just for 50 years, not just for a while, but forever. His kingdom will never end. The baby that Mary would birth would be the king that they have been waiting for. A different kind of king, the king that turns everything upside down. And the crazy significance about this story is actually that God chose to come as a baby. This is significant because of the backstory that we've been exploring. Remember, the people assumed God was wrathful. The people assumed that God was angry. They were even scared of his presence and that he was going to give them a solution to this, a warrior king, an earthly king that would help them to win wars and to conquer nations, all so that they could be considered a great nation. This is the hope that they're resting in. But instead of a scary, wrath-filled warrior with a grudge, God came himself taking on flesh, taking on flesh as an innocent, harmless child. God's telling us something, folks, about himself. He's telling us something about his nature through this Christmas narrative. Our image of God is that he is full of wrath and he's angry at us for our sins. Yes, God comes as a child, though. Not scary, not life-threatening, just cute and innocent. Folks, this proves that our view of God is flawed. God doesn't want to change our world through war and suffering. Instead, he wants to change the world through love and peace. I'm going to say this again. If your image of God is that he is full of wrath and he's angry at us for sin, yet he came as a baby, he's telling you something. That your view of God is flawed because God doesn't want to come as a warrior king who's going to conquer nations, create war and suffering. Instead, he wants to change the world, transform the nation through love and peace. Coming as a baby is the most vulnerable thing and the most non-threatening thing that God could have ever done. Because babies actually need others. Babies need someone to look after them, to nurture them and help them grow up healthy and strong. Think of the risk God is taking, relying on these human beings to raise him up as a child. That's the ultimate vulnerability that the New Testament talks about. And we see this love that Jesus is showing us through coming vulnerably as a child through the whole life of Jesus Christ. And this this baby grows up to become a Jewish rabbi, which is culturally pretty normal, who teaches others to love and to live at peace with others. You ever noticed Jesus' teachings seem to be different than the other religious leaders? Now, this leads me to my second point. Jesus shows us what love actually looks like. You see, if we weren't showing what love looks like, we would be at risk of creating our own version of what love looks like, and it would be completely self-centered, and it would be easy. Because that's what we as human beings do. We do self-centered, easy things. So God comes as a baby in the flesh 
grows up to be a man and shows us what love actually looks like. In Luke chapter 6, he says, but you who are willing to listen, that's interesting, you who are willing to listen, there's lots of people that aren't willing to listen. I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks. And when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that, Jesus says? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only those who can repay to only those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. Love your enemies, Jesus says. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High. For he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate just as your Father is compassionate. This is the message that Jesus gave the world about love. Love your enemies. That's an interesting approach for a king, don't you think? Normally, the disposition of a king would be to ramp up their armies and fight and conquer their enemies. Jesus flips the concept of love upside down. Not only are we to love those who we like, we're also supposed to love those that we don't like. Not only that, but Jesus teaches us that love is actually all about sacrifice. In John chapter 3, verse 16, a really famous passage, for this is how God loved the world. He's showing us what love looks like, that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish and have eternal life. In John chapter 13, verse 34, he says, So now I'm giving you a new commandment. That's interesting. This is something new. What is this new thing? Love each other. You would think the thousands of years that they've already been living, that this would not be new. But to Jesus, he has to give us a new command, and that new command is to love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. How did God love us? He came as a vulnerable child, experienced life just like us, and then gave his life for those he loved, which is every human being on earth. Jesus shows us what love looks like, and it's the most sacrificial thing that we could ever imagine. A willingness to die for another, not just the people you're close to, but for everyone. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus, as king, is evening the playing field. He says it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. The apostle Paul says this, There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's evening the playing field here, folks. I'm not sure that we actually live that, but Scripture says that that's what he did. This is why the love of Christ brings us hope. Hope for today and the future. And that brings me to my last point. Jesus brings us hope right now, even in the midst of a broken world, and he gives us hope for the future as well. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, I I love hearing people quote this passage out of context all the time. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. 
This passage in Jeremiah is not really about you living a life of riches and getting what you want in life. It's actually about the hope that God calls us to, to be a light in a dark world, to be good and show love to others. That's God's plan for you. This is what God planned for each of us, to shine light in the darkness. It's not about your careers. It's not about your status. It's not about getting what you want. It's about becoming a light in a dark world. That is God's plan for you. That's the calling of the gospel. That's Jesus-centric living. The hope that we have today lies in the fact that we have God with us right now, living in us through his spirit. This is how he guides his people, the church, to be the love that he calls us to be. And that's why Walter Brueggemann says that the hope right now lies in the people who are living the story. We have hope because we know that good lies in the hearts of some. And through the power and presence of God in us, we can show others God's love. And we also hold on to a future hope. Listen to what Paul describes in Romans chapter 8, verse 23 to 25. And we believers also groan. I love that. We believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of the future glory. We're being shown glimpses of heaven because the Spirit lives in us. For we, we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. This is what you need to understand. We should be groaning in the Spirit. Because we shouldn't be okay with the way the world is, nor should we be okay with the way the church is. Because we're waiting for future glory for us to be released from sin and suffering. I don't know about you, but we still experience these things, don't we? We too, Paul says, wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised you. I don't know about you, but I'm really looking forward to the new body. As my body progressively breaks down, I am looking forward to being able to do things I could do when I was 20 years old. Sometimes I'm just looking forward to getting up. And we were given this hope when we were saved, he said. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. You see, we long for the day that evil will be gone, that brokenness will longer exist, and we should be mourning and lamenting over the current state of the world. And we can't wait for our future bodies and our full inheritance as God's children. In Revelation 21.4, I read this last week. This is what he says the Messiah will do. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these are gone. Listen to what he says, folks. Forever. Not just temporary not just something that we'll experience for a little while, maybe during a great worship service. All of these things, death, sorrow, crying, pain, God has promised us that these things will be gone forever. This is the hope that we received through the birth of a baby. The hope that one day there'll be no death, no sorrow or crying or pain. It'll just be gone. All of this, folks, is what Simeon and Anna were so excited about. And we're living in the midst of it all today. We get to offer this hope to others by sharing the good news of Jesus, by loving others unconditionally, and being the church that Jesus calls us to be. So this Christmas season, don't miss the significance of this story. Don't miss the significance of the story of a child who is born that changes the trajectory of the world. 
The story of a child who brings us hope, offers us love, peace, and joy in a way, and I want you to hear this, folks, in a way that nothing here on earth could ever fill. And pass on the joy of the story of a child born into a peasant family who gave his life so we could have life. Christmas is not about time off of work. It's not about buying gifts or receiving gifts. It's not even actually about gathering around a turkey together. It's about the most important birth that this world has ever celebrated. The birth of our king who invites us into a kingdom that's full of love, joy, hope, and peace. Christmas is a celebration that is others-centered and reminds us that God came and evened the playing field and that God will come and even it again. As we move into this season, I feel that pastorally I need to speak to our church. And and the reason that I, I feel convicted to do this is because of the things that I've observed in our society today. And I'm deeply grieving the division that I see. The division around things that we shouldn't be divided over. It's okay for you to have your own opinion. It's okay for you at times to express that opinion. But I just want to speak to your church to encourage you to express that opinion with the love of Christ. To express that opinion in a way that doesn't affect others negatively. We need to be a witness in a broken, dark world. We are literally his ambassadors here on earth right now. And so the posture in which we take throughout this Christmas season, throughout this whole COVID season, is I think it's more important now than it's ever been because we actually have an opportunity to show love in a time when love is very absent. We have the possibility to share Christ, to share the significance of a child being born, to redirect society away from its selfish self and into the narrative of a child, a vulnerable baby born, God with us. So don't make Christmas about you getting your way or you getting your things. Make Christmas about the birth of a king. And I say this with with deep love and deep passion. I know that we all have our opinions and we've all stated them in one way or another. I'm not giving you an opinion. I'm just begging you to, to live like Jesus, to love like Jesus, to show the world the significance of the good news that we've been given. So church... I'm calling you to that posture. I'm calling you to a posture of reconciliation, peacemaking, and love. To love our enemies. To not seek what we want, but to seek what he wants. And I believe that if we can even do this in the slightest ways, that it'll be amazing how God will show people the way. But if we keep being divided amongst one another, how are we possibly going to ever shine the light of Christmas to the world when we're acting just like the world? So folks, as I turn to prayer to end the service, I want you to just take a step back And to just reach out to Jesus and say, Lord, correct me, rebuke me, change me, shape me into your image so that I can share your good news with the world.
through my actions, through my thoughts. Live life like all of your thoughts have been revealed. Because I really believe that that is what God is calling his church to in the midst of all this controversy. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you for coming as a vulnerable child. I thank you, Lord, that you stooped to that place, that you took the risk to come that way. Not as a wrathful warrior king, but as a baby, fully vulnerable, relying on others. And I pray, Lord, that that image would show us something about you. And I pray, Lord, that that image would show us how we should be right now. The posture that we should be taking in our lives is that of a child. So, Lord, I know that we're broken with sin. I know that we all struggle with all of these different things. And I just personally want to repent for each time, Lord, that I had those hidden thoughts, the ones that I wouldn't want revealed to anyone. And Lord, I want to repent of each time that I didn't share the gospel with my life. And I ask you, Lord, through the power and presence of God with us, Emmanuel, through the, the Holy Spirit living in us, I ask you, Lord, to nudge me and direct me and to draw me closer to you. Lord, I'm willing to step forward and walk toward you, and I know that when I walk toward you, you come toward me. And so saturate my life in your presence. Convict me when I need convicting. Call me to repent when I need to repent. And help me, Lord, to celebrate this season, the birth of your son, to make that the centerpiece of all of this, to not make me the centerpiece of it all. Because the grace that you offer through the birth of a child, through the death of your son, and through his resurrection, and through your living word, All of that that you offer us, I pray that it projects to the world through us. So Lord, Merry Christmas. And all God's people said, Amen. Folks, as we go today, may you go in peace. May you experience his love, his grace, and his peace in your life today. May the Lord bless you. Mm.